right. I'd like for you to join with me. Scripture reading today will be uh, Hebrews 11. So follow along as I read by the reading of God's Word. God speaks to us today. Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared before the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, as he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before him being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about the things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and because an heir of righteousness, which is according by faith. By faith, Abraham, when was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city, which, was, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead, at that as many descendants as the stars of the heavens in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promise, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of the country from which they went out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he was who had believed the promise and was offering up his only begotten son. It was so to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. 
He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each one of his sons of of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was unseen. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that he would destroy the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land and the Egyptians, when they had tempted, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the harlot, did not perish along with those who, had, who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David of, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection and others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated, wandering in deserts and mountains, in caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Let's pray. Father, it's clear <clears throat> that outside of faith, we're, we're nothing. And there's many things we might put faith and trust in, but uh, it is faith in you, Lord Jesus, and the entrustment of the life that you have given to each one to be in, entrusted to you. 
But we pray that even as these examples demonstrating their righteous faith, that we too would be lifted up in the last days as your trophies for the service that you've called us to. Lord, we heard last week that we need to be salt. We need to be good salt. And we need to be light, not hidden. May we find ourselves in obedience to what you've called us to, to making disciples, to reaching the lost, to carrying your word while we yet still have time to share it with others. I pray this morning as you use uh, Andre in working through this text, that uh, the challenge that you bring to us, uh, Lord Jesus, through the work of your spirit and from the hearing of the word, would uh, just continue to draw us closer to you, embolden us to be um, the saints of the temple that serve this area in a way that would bring honor and glory to yourself. We pray these things this morning as we come to now hear your word, and it's in your son's name. Amen. Morning, FBC. Title this morning is a living faith. My argument is a saving faith is an enduring faith, an active faith. As we come into Hebrews, we're at the eleventh chapter here, and at this point in the in the text, for ten chapters, the author of Hebrews is exalting Christ in the work that Christ has done to this uh, church. Uh, the scholars don't know exactly who this church is. A lot of them think that it could be Jews who are being tempted to go back to uh, Judaism, who are tempted to go back to something that is familiar to them, or it, or it might not be. It could be just regular Christians who, in the course of time, walk in this Christian life, are becoming dull of hearing, which the author accuses them of becoming. They're beginning to shrink back. They're beginning to waver in their devotion to God. But we understand this, right? Because the Christian walk is not easy. It is the hardest thing you will ever do if you're truly walking in faith in Christ. It will cost you everything. And these saints are becoming tired. They're dull. They're weary. They're shrinking back. And the author in chapter 10, he warns them, He says, I'll just start in 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. They started out great. They started out even enduring Uh, tribulations and persecutions and sufferings and they did it joyfully and willfully because they knew they had a better position. They knew they had the promises of God coming. 
And so the author, after 10 chapters of showing the excellencies of Jesus Christ and this position is the, the high priest, he's a, he's a high priest that has gone into the heavenlies and he has made peace for us with God. A high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. After 10 chapters of showing the excellencies of Christ, he now says to them and exhorts them, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, church, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And so we reach, he exhorts them, he warns them, don't shrink back. Don't let go of your faith. It will produce great reward for you to the preserving of your soul. And now here in 11, he wants to show them others have done it. Others have gone before you. This great witness this cloud of witness, all the old, old saints from Abel all the way to, to the present. They have done everything that we do, that you're doing, church. They persevere through faith. They endure through faith. And so he starts out in verse 11. What is faith? How do we preserve in faith? What is faith? First point, he starts out, and I just want to read to you this first verse. But I'm going to read it to you from several different translations because it's a very hard verse to figure out what he's saying. So from the King James Version, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The NSB or the ESV says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Or the NIV says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. Do you see how the translators are struggling to put into words what is being said in verse 1? I had to go through six, seven different commentaries, and all of them struggled to, to define exactly what is being said here. But I think uh, what is being said here is more faithfully conveyed through the King James Version. I think... Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So what does that mean? Well, I think if we look at the two words in the, in the sentence, faith and hope, and recognize the distinction in them, they're, they're intricately entwined. They're, they're very connected, but there is a slight detail in the, in the sense of faith and hope. How do we understand hope in our time as, as modern American English-speaking people? We have hope in a lot of things, right? I, I have hope that the stock market's going to go up, and so I put my money in there, and then it does the opposite and goes right down. It's uncertain. Uh, I have a hope that this winter will be a hard winter. We have a lot of hay in the barns, and if we do not have a hard winter, we will not get that hay sold. And so my hope, my expectation is that we will have a hard winter. But it's uncertain. I don't know if we'll have a hard winter. 
What do do, uh, immigrants coming to America hope in? They hope in obtaining the American dream. Will they obtain it? Don't know. It's uncertain. All of our hopes in the concept of hope for us is a future desire. Let me just read. I wrote it out here. It's a desire of the heart for the future of what we would like to have come to pass. That's our understanding of hope in our modern American understanding. The hope is in the stock market. The hope is in hard winter. The hope is in the American dream. The object, those are the object of it. But the object of that hope, uh, there's an uncertainty to it. It's it's not absolute, 100% guaranteed. So our thought of hope is always mixed with an uncertainty. But when the Bible speaks of a hope, it does not have the concept of uncertainty in it. Because the object of the hope in, in terms of Scripture is a hope is always based in God. And God is always 100% faithful. He is always 100% good on His Word. So when we have a hope in the promises of God, it is a certain hope. It is not a hope that, oh, I'm hoping, I hope this is right. I hope Jesus is real. I hope he's coming back. No, our hope in those things is that it is real, it is certain, and it is going to happen. Because the object of our hope is God. And God is 100% faithful to his promises. I think it's conveyed well, if you just flip back a couple of pages to Hebrews 6. Starting in verse 13, he says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation in the end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope, so our hope set in God is sure and and sets on the ground of God's word himself. His his oath, his word is 100% because God does not lie. His word can be taken at face value. And so this hope, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. So it's a hope that is set on God, the promises of God. And so that hope now isn't necessarily in that it's a present hope or it's in what God has done, but it's a hope in what he's going to do. Our hope is set in the promises of God. The gospel is a promise for future salvation. His his rewards, his promise to us is all set in the future sense. So when we say we hope in God, it's not like, oh, I hope this is real. No, my hope is steadfast, locked in a faithful God 
who cannot lie. His word is always true. And so my hope is secure and set. Now, if my hope is based on something God has said about the future, how is that hope manifest in me? How, does it, how do you know I have hope in God? And I think this is how the verse is now able to be seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. So since I have a hope in God, the substance of that hope, the weight of that hope, the content of that hope is my faith. My faith is the assurance that I have a hope. So when we look at those other translations, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That kind of makes you feel like, oh, I really got to have assurance and then my faith will be strong. Or the other one, now faith is confidence in what we hope for. Oh, I better have strong confidence always. I got to have this feeling of confidence. But now we can see that through the substance, substance of hope, what is the content of your hope? The weight of your hope? Faith is. Faith is. I know you hope in God by your faith. A a living faith that comes out of your life. The hope of your life is seen because you walk by faith. But even in these other translations, now you can kind of see where the, uh, the translators are going with it, right? My faith is my assurance. My faith is my confidence in my hope of God. I can have hope that I'm hoping in God because of my faith. I have a faith in God. It is real. So when he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, that faith is my assurance to me that, my, that what I'm living for is a ho- the hope of God. I'm living in light of his promises. I can have hope because I have faith. So, when, uh, every time here in the gorge, when we get to about the third week in February, somewhere in there, we always kind of get that pineapple express. And it gets real warm, and sometimes even up to 60. And what do we get when we get, start feeling that weather in February? We got this hope. Oh, spring's almost here. It's coming. It's coming. So my, because of that warm days, because of those, that Pineapple Express, oh, my hope is the certainty. Oh, spring's right around the corner. And what's the substance of that hope? What's the evidence of that hope that I'm thinking spring is right around the corner? We start going buying seeds to sprout. We start wearing t-shirts outside. There's an evidence that the hope of spring is right around the corner. That it is right there at the door. It's coming. So, faith is the substance, the outworking, the manifestation, the weight of our hope in God. That is what our faith is. I think we can see that the concept of how we live is connected to the hope we have in life. In 1 Peter 3.15, he says, Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Now, in that question, even inside of that question, the one who's asking the question, there's an implication that when he asks what is the hope in your life, 
He, it implies that he's looking at your life and he's seeing that what's driving your actions, your behavior, the decisions, the priorities of your life, there, there's, a, there's a hope in your life. There's an object in your life that he isn't familiar with. And so that's why he asks, what, what's driving you? Why, why do you live the way you live? What is the hope of your life? He doesn't ask you, what's your faith in? He doesn't ask you about what your, your understanding of this or that is. It's like, what drives you? And it's our hope in the promises of God. That's what drives us. It's that he has promised us life. He has promised us eternal life. He has promised us everlasting life. A life that is full of joy. A life that is with him. And so we place our trust in him. And I think that they ask that because I think they want the same thing we want. We want to enjoy life. We want happiness, success, purpose, meaning, love, pleasure, significance, glory. We want all those things. And so does the world. They want those things too. I think sometimes when we think about the doctrine of total depravity, we just start to envisioning monsters in our head. But these are people with hopes and dreams, and they desire to be happy. They desire to have uh, a significance to their life, that their life matters, just like you and I do. And we got to remember this about the world outside of us. And those desires aren't bad. What is bad and just plain wicked is that they try to do it apart from God. They try to seek all those things, joy, purpose, happiness, meaning, love, and pleasures apart from God. Whereas because of the mercy and grace of God towards us, we see him as the source of all those things. We come to Christ because we know that in Christ we obtain all that. Life eternal, purpose, meaning, glory. The end of the gospel, remember, is glory. We're headed for glory. We get to have that by the mercy of God. They put their hopes in careers, women, men, education, business, psychology, money, and all of it leaves them bankrupt. All of it leaves them in a worse shape than they were before they pursued those things. And all the answers that the world gives them not, doesn't lead to life or happiness or joy. It won't help them even here in this moment, and it certainly will not help them when they stand before the Lord. It will not help them. Their psychology will not help them when they stand before the Lord. Do you see why it's so important? You must be the salt and light. You must live your life with purpose so that they see you. They want the same thing that you and I want. But by the mercy of God, we know that that's found in Christ. So if faith is the substance of our hope in Christ, if it is the weight, the content, the manifestation of what we are hoping in, then the question is, what, what is not faith? Because I think sometimes we... That's kind of a weird question. What, so if that's what faith is, or part of what faith is, is that it's that, that content of the hope, 
then how do we know that the faith that we have is real faith? A better way to maybe ask it. And so, point number two is what faith isn't. What faith isn't. So, faith is, we know, the substance of the hope we have in Christ. It's the outworking of it, the weight, the content. And so, the rest of that verse, verse 1, it says, the conviction of things not seen or the evidence of things not seen, New King James Version. One of the things that we as Christians get knocked for in terms of our faith is uh, we have a blind faith. We have an unreasonable faith. Um, it's for weak people who can't figure it out, intellectually uh, inferior. And so they, they use faith as a crutch. But I want you to see that faith is totally reasonable. <laughs> our faith and our hope is totally uh, un, not, not reasonable. We do not have a blind faith. We're accused of having a blind faith, but we do not have a blind faith. He says, it is the conviction of things not seen. It is the evidence of those things that are not seen. So we know from Scripture the, the account, right, that God has given us. We got the Old Testament. We got the creation account. We got the history of the worlds. We got how God has worked through Israel all the way up to the Messiah, right? And then even the gospel writers, like Peter, he says, um, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, so as he's ministering, writing his letters, he's, he's telling them, this, this is real. This is historical data. This is eyewitness accounts. This isn't, we're not putting our, our faith in div, cleverly devised tales. This is his, history. And even Luke in Acts, the careful historian, he, he, he sets out to write an account of everything that has happened in the early church. And he uses eyewitness accounts. It's a it's not some fable. It's not some story made up. And even John himself, when he writes the gospel, he says the purpose of his gospel is so that you believe. I want you to know the facts of Jesus and what has happened and what he did so that you will have faith. Faith comes by hearing by the word of God. But is faith just a reasonable response to the historical facts? I would say no. It's not just a reasonable response to the historical facts. I would say that's not even enough. I, I know a lot of people will say like, uh, we'll, well, we'll walk out the gospel to somebody, work it out, explain it to them, explain the history of it. Do you agree with these things? And the person will say, yes, I agree with that. And there's a mental accent, but is that faith? Is that trusting in God, the mental ascent to historical facts? Well, it's part of it, right? It's part of it, but it's not the whole package. In verse 3, he says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So he's saying by faith, we can look at the earth, we can look at the creation, we can look at ourselves, animals, everything, the stars, and by faith, we know this came into existence by the word of God. That that is faith 101, right? 
That's not hard to, to, to embrace. Can the world embrace that? Yeah. The world can embrace it. It's not unreasonable. To Romans 1, right? Romans 1, they see it. His invisible attributes, the Godhead, it's manifest through creation. They can see it. It's not unreasonable for an unregenerate person to be able to see that, you know what, I don't think this exploded out of nothing and just popped up. This, there has to be a creator. There has to be a God. There has to be somebody that put this together. It's not an unreasonable thing. And so even the unregenerate can look at it and agree. There's a reasonableness to that, right? Right? We, you would, you would, that's what creationists uh, uh, apologetics does. It tries to show you, you know, like it shows you the human eye and the complexity of it and life and all proteins and all those things. And you're like, you know, I still see how that could be. So there's a reasonableness to it. It's not a big leap for them to say that God, some or, or, or a God or, or some creator, somebody, somebody did this. Even Psalms says the heavens declare night unto night. It speaks forth. So faith isn't just believing in God, per se, in God. It's believing God. Because the unregenerate can believe that there's a God who's behind this, right? That's not unreasonable. They can see that there is something behind everything. They believe in God in the sense that there's some force or some being that created this. They can do that. It's not unreasonable. The demons do that, right? They believe in God and they what? Shudder. They're terrified. That's demon faith. What completes it so that we have real faith or whole faith or a complete faith? And I would say it's not that you just believe in God. You cannot just give a mental assent to the facts and think that you're putting your hope in God. It's not believing in God in the sense of a mental assent. It is believing God. You take him at his word. I believe your promises, God. I Faith is taking your whole life, everything, and putting it, banking it, putting the bet all on the gospel. That's what faith is. You are trusting in his promises. You not only believe there's a God, you believe his word, you believe his promises, and you're banking everything on it to the point you're going to lose this life. Faith is trusting in him and what he does and what he says. It's not merely believing in God. It's believing God. To believe in God takes no faith. It's actually the reasonable thing that there is. So, when we look at verse Six, we, we, so our faith is the substance of this hope in his word. We're trusting in his word. 
And so that faith is the substance, manifestation, content of the hope we have. The hope we have in God, in his promises. So we believe, but verse 6 clarifies it now. Look with me at verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. Okay, I believe in God. But what's the other half of it? What completes it? Verse 6. And that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We come to God. We grab hold of God because we need God. We need his promises. We need all the benefits of God. We have nothing apart from him. We have nothing apart from him. In fact, if we die apart from him, we are utterly destroyed. We will stand bare and naked before him in our own acts, in our own works, in our utter lostness. We come to God in a needy, in a needy, a needy position because that's who we are before God. We are not self-sustaining creatures. We, we are creatures that are desperate need of a gracious, merciful, loving God who says, come to me. All who are thirsty, come to me. We need this more than anything else at all in this world. Faith is looking to God, seeing who he is, and the promise he has made and banking everything on him, trusting in him. Faith is grabbing hold of God and saying, I'm not letting go until you bless me. That's what faith is. Remember Jacob when he wrestled with God? I won't let you go until you bless me. That's what faith is. It's not a mental ascent that there's a God. The demons know that. The dead world knows that. Even atheists know it. How can you spend your whole life trying to prove something you don't believe? It's ridiculous. No, faith is coming to God, believing that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek after him. Our hope is in God because of who he is and the promises he has made to us. He has made us promises, church. He has promised us eternal life. He has promised us forgiveness of sins. He has promised a new body, a new age to come, a new kingdom. I want all of it. Because I want life. We are, we are men and women, people who have been uh, created with emotions and mind and thinking. And I want to have life to the fullness. And he's promising it to us. He's giving it to us. And so I'm banking on him. I'm banking on those words, those, that gospel that's my faith is, my trust is in. He made promises and he will see through to fulfill those promises to us. I'm banking on that and you should be banking on that too. And this is here where sometimes I, I, I get a little frustrated with preachers who don't like to Emphasize that <laughs> because they feel like uh, desiring those promises or desiring what God is offering or desiring uh, anything other than just saying, I just love Jesus so much. I don't need all that other stuff. 
No, you do need all that other stuff. That's life. You get it in Christ. In Christ is everything. I, I don't like the false dichotomy of either you love Jesus or you love stuff. That is a false dichotomy. When Jesus offers himself, he offers the kingdom. You get the kingdom in the gospel. And to desire the kingdom is not wrong. It is right. Our faith is not just in the concept of faith or in the concept of that there's a God. It's in the God of the Bible and in his promises. Our faith and hope rest in that. Away with the false dichotomy of separating Christ and his word to us or Christ and the offering he holds out to us. We need those things. We are needy Christians needy people. As a father and a dad, one of the greatest things, one of the greatest joys I have as a father and a dad is that I'm able to provide for my family. That my family looks to me for provision. They look to me to supply their needs. They look to me to figure the problems out. They look to, it honors me. We do the same thing to God. We magnify his glory when we seek him in all things, in all of our needs, in everything he offers us. We magnify his worth. We put on display the glory of his ability to provide and the trustworthiness of his word when we are Christians who hope in his promises and hope in the reward to come, it magnifies his name. Our desire of the reward magnifies his glory as an all-powerful, sustaining God. So when our faith is seeing the unseen and living for that, that is the evidence of our hope in God, the faith that we have of a world to come, of the promises to come in Christ. So how do we know if we have saving faith? How do we know that our faith is tied to a hope and not just to a belief in a God or belief in some historical facts? How do we know it's tied to a living hope, to the promises of God? Because we have, my point number three, because we have a living faith. It's not a dead faith. Our faith propels us in our lives like nothing else. We have a living faith. Look with me again back at the text. Let's look at verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed God by going out <clears throat> to a place where he, which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived in an alien land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. So you know the story. God goes to Abraham. I want you to get up and leave out Ur of the Chaldeans, and I want you to go to a land that I'm going to give you. And he makes promise to Abraham, right? Here's the promise. Here's the hope. What's Abraham do? He gets up and he leaves. And he goes out and he lives in tents. Abraham is a wealthy man back in the Ur Chaldeans. He's an established man. He has everything the world would want. And he leaves it all. Why? Why does he leave it? It tells us right here, verse 10. 
for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He wanted the promises of God. He wanted to be in the eternal kingdom. He wanted to live in that city that is being prepared by God. He wanted the reward. And look how he does it. Well, verse 13. Him, Sarah, the, the, the pre-flood saints, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them from seeing them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are, what? Seeking. They want it. They're going after it. They're seeking it. Seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of the country from which they went out, they would have had an opportunity to return. Abraham could have left. Abraham said, I'm done with this. I'm done with this tents. I'm done with the dirt and everything else. I'm going back to Ur. I'm done. But he doesn't because he wants the reward. He wants the promises of God. But as it is, they desire. There's a living faith. Desire. Faith produces desire. Do you desire the promises of God? Do you desire the reward? Do you desire the kingdom to come? Do you desire life eternal with Christ, ruling and reigning forever? Do you desire that? Does that fuel you in your life today? A living faith has desire. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That's the closest you can get to God saying he's proud of you. You realize that? When you desire what he offers to you. Because he's prepared it for you. He wants to give it to you. It's to his glory to give it to you. And when you want what he gives you, you glorify him. And he is pleased with you. He's pleased with you. When you want the rewards he offers you. That's what it says. He's almost saying, I'm proud of you. Even Sarah. Look at Sarah. Verse um, 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive. How did she receive ability to conceive? Sovereign election. <laughs> That's our stock answer, right? But what does that mean? We have to be a little more thorough in how we explain the gospel. How does he do it through the ordination? How does it, what's the means of it happening? Her faith. And look what her faith does here. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even before the proper time, since she what? She considered. She thought about it. She thought about who God was. She thought about the promise. And she believed it. Remember her first response? She laughed. Right? And God asked, why is Sarah laughing? I'm not laughing. Oh, yes, you are. Why'd she laugh? She's an old lady. She's not going to have a child. She's never had a child up to this point. It's, it's, it's a joke, God. But what does faith do? 
Faith takes the promise and it considers. It thinks it through. It reasons. Do you see how faith is alive? It's not a dead thing. It's seeking. It's desiring. It's considering. It's reasoning. Sarah considered and then she received the power to to give birth or to conceive. It's because of the living faith in her. Moses, the same thing. Look at Moses at verse 26 or 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Could Moses have enjoyed the passing pleasures of sin? Oh, yeah. He's living as a prince in Pharaoh's court. He had everything. It was his. Nothing could be withheld from him. Like that's fat city to a man of the flesh, right? But what was the problem? He chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Why? Because he considered. He thought about God. He thought about the promises. He thought about eternity. He thought about what's coming. He considered the reproaches of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. How do you give up this world in its delicacies and delights and promises and pleasures? You do it by replacing it with other promises of delicacies and delights. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? It's true. And faith wants those pleasures. Faith wants those rewards. Faith wants that life. Faith wants that God. Because only that God can satisfy the longing in our heart. And even look at verse 35 with me. Women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release. So they're being tortured for the sake of Christ. And it says they won't accept the release. So what's going on? They're being tortured. It sounds like they got a chance to get out of that torture. Maybe somebody's saying, hey, just say you don't believe in Jesus. We can't. Curse Jesus, curse Jesus. We'll let you go. You can live. And what does it say they do? Others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. What kept them enduring the suffering unto death? Because they knew they had the promise of resurrection coming. Their hope was in the promises of God. That fueled them to endure the persecutions and sufferings all the way to death. Because of the promise of resurrection. The promise of life with God forever. So conclusion. Let's look back at chapter 10 with me. The author goes over and over all these heroes of the faith in how they lived their lives and pleased God and obtained, well, they haven't received the promise yet. They still haven't to this day because God's way is, is doing something wonderful. All of us will be, receive the promise at once, but that's a different sermon right now. But let's look back at 10. 
Because this is what the author is doing. He is exhorting this church. Do not let go of your faith, church. He says, remember your suffering. Verse 32 of 10, I'm sorry. Remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through the approaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your properties. So these Christians, when they were enlightened, were filled with joy and they were not afraid to be uh, identified with those who were in prison because of their faith. And in so doing, they, they lost, right? They, they had their property uh, plundered. Everything was taken from them because they identified as Christian and they identified with those being put in prison. And they joyfully did it. Why did they joyfully do it? Why was it a joy to them? Why did it make them happy? Because you know that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Because your hope is in the promises of God. Your hope's not in your stuff here. Your hope's not in your your car or your job or your so-called career. It's not in those things. And for us as Christians, it is in Christ. In Christ alone. That's what our hope rests in. In his promises. When we have Christ, we have everything. Please show the world and even the church. The church needs to see Christians like this. The church in this country needs some spirited, zealous believers living for something else. They need these examples. But he says, verse 36, or verse 35, I'm sorry, therefore, Do not throw away your confidence or do not throw away your assurance or do not throw away the substance of your faith. Don't throw of your hope. Don't throw away your faith. Don't walk away because that which he has promised will come. It's coming. Don't throw it away. Don't stop now. Endure. That's what he's exhorting them. That's what he's calling them to. He says, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And then he quotes Habakkuk, for yet in a very little while, he was coming, will come. Jesus is coming. He's coming. He says, my, I'm coming and my reward is with me. He was coming, will come and will not delay. But my righteous one, the ones who will stand in that day when he comes, the ones who will be pleasing to him, are those the ones who stand in faith, who trust in him and do not shrink back. That's who will, when he returns, look at the words he uses again. My soul has no pleasure in them. He's pleased with us when we live and act and work and do in faith. We cannot shrink back. We will not endure to the end if we shrink back in our faith. It won't happen. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. We must hold on to our faith. 
We must put our hope solely in Jesus Christ. We must look unto him. We must set our hope fully on him because he is coming. And that hope in him will strengthen our faith to live for him. Church, please stand for a benediction. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by, with, into, with into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. FBC, set your hope fully on God. Live lives of faith until he returns. You are dismissed.